Will you please join me as I pray? Father, would you come by the power of your spirit and minister to your people? I thank you that we do not engage in this activity by our own efforts, but that we come to respond to your power and your pursuit. And I pray that in these moments, you would give us a proper understanding. Open our minds and our hearts to see the world the way that you see it, that we would understand this interaction of wealth and poverty in this world in which we live Help us to navigate these realities in a way that bring you glory, that help us to be kingdom people. So we look forward to what you have for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a moment in time that is allergic to nuance. Um, Culture has labored to eradicate it from many of the conversations that take place that a a world that is negotiated and delivered to us by means of screens and where most all things are politicized, we are tempted to think of statements in such a way that we can hear a statement and say, oh, you're this type of person. I, I I understand everything else that you believe about the world because of your statement in this area about this topic. And as a result, we're a people that many times are if we're not careful, growing allergic to nuance. We engage in a world where we're delivered texts without context. We're delivered ideas purely through images rather than thinking deeply about the implications and the undergirding of those ideas. And as a result, we can, if we're not careful, participate in quickly canceling others' opinions because I didn't like what you said over here, so everything that you have to say about everything, I'm done with. And this morning... We're continuing in a conversation about ancient wisdom for modern living about our finances, but we're looking specifically at poverty. Last week, we talked about wealth. This week, we're talking about poverty. Next week, generosity. And then lastly, contentment. And what I love, I I love a lot about the scriptures because I think they're they're delightful. (laughs) They're worth our time and our energy because the voice of God is heard when we open the scriptures and his voice is powerful and beautiful. One of the things that I would commend to you, one of the reasons to love the scriptures is that they defy our cultural moment that wants to eliminate nuance. They actually invite us into a richer and a deeper and a more nuanced conversation than we often have. And that will certainly be the case today as we look at what the Proverbs have to say about poverty. And if we are tempted to allow culture to shape the way that we think, then we're tempted to say, well, yes to this and no to this, when the scriptures are gonna say, well, if you're gonna think biblically and holistically about this issue, you're gonna have to get real comfortable with nuance, with distinction, with ideas that feel like they're tugging in different directions, but wisdom is found in holding them together in that tension. And so the invitation for us today is to recognize that wisdom both provides and, and demands a nuanced approach to how we, un, how we think about and engage with poverty. And that's going to be both in our time together, a wisdom, a wisdom infused nuanced understanding of the causes of poverty and the cures of poverty. 
So I'd invite you to enter into this space of biblical wisdom that causes us to slow down and to think about things holistically and begins to shape our souls so that we can be kingdom people that resists the spirit of the age, the spirit of Babylon, as we've been talking about for quite some time together as a community and and engage in something that's different, that's heavenly, that we would become kingdom people and kingdom outposts. So with that being said, we're gonna plunge into these Proverbs and we're gonna start by trying to make sense of what is a nuanced understanding, a wise and holistic understanding of poverty's causes look like. And the first thing, if we're going to sketch out a biblical understanding of what causes poverty in the world, the first thing that we would have to note is this, personal responsibility is profoundly impacting poverty in the biblical worldview. Let's look at Proverbs 10, 4, and 22, 13 as they they stand for a host of other Proverbs that we could be reading that, that draw out this point. The first note is this, a slack hand causes poverty. Now, Remember, we talked last week about the genre of Proverbs, that these are not, these are not if-then, tr- um, like, lock-tight promises that always hold their truisms, generally about the way, way the world works. And what it's saying is a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now, the, the phrase for slack hand here in the Hebrew has a connotation of deception, it's, it's a laziness with deception baked in, so to speak. So it's the idea of at work when the difficult tasks are being handed out, this sort of person, the one with a slack hand, hangs back and thinks, I'm gonna let the other people do the heavy lifting. It's, it's the person that when, when the hard work is being done is crouching in the shadows, hoping the boss doesn't recognize that, in fact, I'm not really a part of the solution. I'm just trying to get by. I'm just punching the clock, thank you very much. Can't wait till my shift is done and I hope the boss doesn't pick up on the fact that I'm just sliding through. It says this sort of mindset will ultimately catch up to a person and it's what causes poverty. Laziness in conjunction with kind of this deceptive, I just wanna avoid the challenging work that God is calling to, to me in life. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. That the, we even talked about this a little bit last week in talking about the nature of wealth. The one who is industrious, who wakes early, who opens their eyes and awakens the dawn will not lack for bread. So we're, we're sketching out this reality that personal responsibility is connected to poverty and in another way, in, in Proverbs twenty two thirteen, it says this, the sluggard says, the sluggard is connected to the slack hand. It's this person that is, is resisting hard work. It says, there's a lion outside. I'm gonna be killed in the streets. And you see what, what the author of this wisdom literature is saying here, this proverb that comes from the lips of Solomon, what he's saying is that the sluggard or the slack hand never lacks for excuses, like absurd excuses. I was gonna get started today. Today was the day where I was gonna turn it around. I was gonna work hard. I was gonna apply for the jobs. I was gonna do the next thing. But there was a lion crouching in the streets and he was gonna devour me. And in essence, he's wanting those that are engaging in this proverb to kind of chuckle and be like, oh yeah, I've, I've been with that person or I've been that person where I got locked into something where I was always making the excuse as to why I couldn't be the one to show up on time. Why I couldn't be the one that worked hard. Why I couldn't be the one that got the job done. Uh, I spent time with a, 
a guy recently that has a PhD in leadership and he did his research in global cities all around the world, spending time with key leaders in entrepreneurial settings. And so it had some crossover impact for some of the work that I've been doing with church planters. He was talking about anyone that was starting a new work in a city center. And he did research on what are the primary indicators that someone is going to be successful in starting something new, particularly in a global city center. And he said, you know, interestingly, the prime indicator if someone was going to succeed or fail was how focused they were on external circumstances. He said those who did not succeed were constantly talking about all the things in the system that were acting on them, that they were being acted upon by lots of other issues. And he said those that succeeded had a a locus of control inside themselves. They've thought of themselves as an actor on the world that I showed up and when they told their stories, he said, we've got hundreds and hundreds of hours of interviews and you can almost, he said, it became the lead indicator on was someone going to be successful in starting a new venture or not? He said, well, it depends. Do they think that they have personal responsibility and agency and the ability to move the needle or do they just think that they're being acted upon by everyone else? An interesting uncovering that in some ways connects to the wisdom that the Proverbs are drawing out for us. Donald Miller, in his most recent book, uh, talks about how every good story has four characters. And in your story, you are being, you know, you're writing your story day to day. Each chapter is being written. Right now, you're a part of the unveiling of your story. And he makes the, the comment that these four characters are always present and we're always playing one of them. Every good story is made up of these four characters. And he says, it, it, the question is, which one are you going to play in your own story? He says, there's victim, villain, hero, and guide. And as he talked about and sketched out these characters, what I found so provocative and telling was this. In his read, he said, the thing that determines which character you're gonna be is how you metabolize suffering. Because victims metabolize suffering in this way. It's always gonna be this way. It's always gonna be heaped on me. I have nothing I can do about it. There's a lion in the streets and it's waiting to devour me. Villains experience suffering because listen, the, the reason the metabolization of suffering is the marker of what kind of character we're gonna be is because that's the baseline of the human existence east of Eden. We're all gonna suffer. The question is how we're gonna respond. A villain says the world has broken me in all of these ways. I'm gonna make the world feel my pain. A hero says this suffering, it can be transformed into something productive and fruitful in my life. And the guide is one that can start saying, and I can help others discover that. Now, I say all that to say this. What the Proverbs are saying is that if we settle down into victim or villain mentality, if we say there's so many actors working on me and I'm just gonna hang back and take care of myself, I'm, not, I'm gonna be a slack hand that tries to hide in the shadows and keep a low profile because the world just acts upon me. He said, what wisdom is saying is that leads to poverty. That leads to devastation. That leads to limited opportunity and experience because personal responsibility is a significant component of how poverty works in this world. And there's, there's some of us that when we hear that, we go, yeah, that's right. That's the way poverty works. 
This is the land of opportunity. And if you're diligent and hardworking, you're gonna succeed. And if you're lazy and you're deceptive and you think yourself a villain or a victim, you're just going to get passed over. And the Proverbs say, yeah, that's true. And the secondary cause equally present in the wisdom literature for poverty is this, injustice and oppression. And I love that the Proverbs paints very clearly with both brushes simultaneously. Look with me at chapter 13, verse 23, and chapter 22, verse 7, where it says this. Chapter 13, verse 23. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. What it's saying is the potential for what is needed to provide for the poor is present but the system keeps wiping it away. It says injustice in the system pulls away, it sweeps away or it snatches or it grabs, the term is articulating. That it's, it's taking from the hands of the poor that might be able to provide for themselves, but incidentally the system prevents it. It's swept away through injustice. Or again in Proverbs 22 verse 7, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is the slave of the lender. Once again, the genre of the Proverbs is speaking truisms. He's just the wisest man on the planet at the time, surveying the landscape and saying, this is the way the world works. The second proverb is saying this, someone always holds the power. Someone's making the decision. Someone has the power chips. And he's saying, and I'll tell you who it is. It's the people with the money. That's what he says in chapter 22, verse seven. And as a result, those that are borrowing are always enslaved to or under the direction of the one that is, loan, is loaning, is lending. It's, it's, it's a power differential at play. In, in a host of other Proverbs, what he begins to articulate is that the rich and the ones with the power that are making the decisions can frequently make those decisions in a way that benefits themselves. There is a temptation baked in to, to bend the system, to create an undercurrent. And quite frankly, my commentary looking at these Proverbs is that it's, it's not always malicious. It sometimes it's just generated by blind spots. That when all the needs are met and you've got the wealth and the power, oftentimes the, re the recognition is just not clear about how the decisions being made are affecting those that are not in the same position. And the Proverbs are just stating, that's kind of the way the world works. This is a reality. So much potential is swept away. And this is why we see generational poverty churning in the world. Generation to generation to generation. That frequently it's in neighborhoods where opportunities educationally are not present in the same way. And so children of poverty are raised in such a way where they don't have access to the same opportunities and the same education. Or dietary realities in certain neighborhoods. There's just not access to fruits and vegetables and fuel that is healthy for the body and the mind. And so children of poverty are raised up in a way where their, their bodies are not fueled properly and their minds are not trained in a way that allows. And, and what is potential there in the fields is swept away generation after generation. 
in such a way that someone in that seat may very likely say, yeah, you tell me that a slack hand causes this, but it feels a little bit like my field keeps getting snatched from me. And the proverb says, well, yeah, poverty works that way. And you see, God's wisdom, hmm, God's wisdom does not run in political lines. God's wisdom refuses to be couched in ways that negate or avoid nuance. That when God speaks, he doesn't speak from the right or the left, but he speaks from above in a way that challenges those that want to speak in simplistic terms. And what he's saying is, listen, people of God, I want you to understand how the world works so that you can engage with it properly. So let's talk about wisdom as it relates to poverty and the causes for poverty are personal responsibility and injustice in the same breath in a way that one is not negating the other. The way that we we see the realities of something like injustice snatching the fields of the poor, it's an interesting note on prison reform written by Robin Mayer. She says this, if you want to ask what is the one tie that binds those that are in on death row or in the most significant places of, uh, of lockdown in countries all across the world, Pakistan, US, China, Malaysia, Malawi. She says it's that they are 95 to 99% below the poverty line. And that's equally true in the US as in countries where poverty is much more prevalent. The idea being that the capacity to live as full and engaged people in the community that have the same sort of access to legal defense and the same sort of education and the same sort of opportunities that the world is broken. An injustice that is articulated some 3,000 years ago is still true. Injustice and oppression and personal responsibility are causing a tremendous amount of heartache, brokenness, a lack, a devastation in our world. You see, Wisdom provides a nuanced understanding of the causes of poverty. And wisdom provides a nuanced understanding of the cures of poverty. I want us to look at what does the text have to say about how God's people are to engage wisely in a world that is marked by brokenness, by uh, a, a... a distribution of wealth that in, in some ways continues to leave people in a devastated and, and, and powerless position. Saying, well, what, what would the scripture say about a wise view of the cures of this sort of reality? Well, the first thing that the Proverbs are going to put forth for us is this. And, and in many ways, I think this is like way upstream. If this doesn't find a place in our minds and our hearts in a robust way, the ability to work towards meaningful conclusions in our community, our circles, our nation is eradicated. It's not possible. And the first reality that has to be true if we're gonna be part of the cure is a radical sense of equality. And that God's wisdom speaks equality into the system in ways that no other voice does in the same powerful way. I want to just look at this. Let's look at chapter 13 verse, or pardon me, verse, chapter 29 verse 7. 
in chapter 22, verse 2. We read this, a righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. Now, you see that the Proverbs are speaking about wisdom, but they cut across several different categories constantly. They're talking about intelligence with understanding and knowledge and availing yourself of the information, but they're also cutting across morality consistently, talking about the righteous and the wicked. Because when wisdom comes to bear, it's not one or the other. It's not intelligence or morality. It's the combination and the application of those realities to real world challenges. So what he's saying is, listen, let's talk about the righteous and the wicked as it relates to what they're understanding and what they're learning. A righteous man or woman is able to access this sort of knowledge. They realize that everyone is tremendously, profoundly, unassailably equal. <laughs> like equal in dignity and value and worth. That they, uh, they have rights, that they understand the rights of the poor, whereas a wicked man does not understand such knowledge. The idea of it being wicked, not understanding this knowledge, it's not just like wicked that you can't figure this out. It's wicked that you don't want to figure it out. Right? That, that's why it's wicked. It's this idea of like, if you would stop and consider Wisdom moves slow and pays attention to the way the world works. And he goes, let me tell you, it's wicked that you don't understand this knowledge. That you can't look at other people and see their rights and their values. It goes on to say in chapter 22, verse 2, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. As he's continuing to sketch out this idea of equality, what he's saying is that when the rich and the poor are together, they start to access this knowledge. We're not different. God made us in his image. And in the New Testament, James writes about this because he understands the proclivities of the human heart. He knows that you and I are gonna be tempted to smuggle into communal interactions a fascination with and a commitment to, a delight in the rich. Like, oh, this person has some stature. They've got some money. I want to, I just want to be next to them. James says you're going to be tempted towards favoritism constantly because you're impressed by things that are not impressive. Someone's car is not impressive in God's economy. Their clothes and their house and their title, it does not impress God. The folly of humanity is that we don't slow down enough to go, when poor and rich meet together, God made them all. All made in the image of God, which incidentally means this. Listen, every human being, irrespective of their net worth, is equally valuable and stunning because they've been made in the image of God. Like to look into the eyes of another man or woman, no matter if they slept in River Oaks or on the street last night, they are a, a child that has been shaped in the image of God that is an image bearer. And he's going, until we actually believe it. Like not, we could pass the theological exam on the Imago Day and go, yeah, image of God, I've heard of that. Everybody's got it. I can write down that answer. He's like, that's fine, that's good. But do you keep giving your interest and devotion and you get really excited about being close to the wealthy in such a way that you're sidestepping those that are less impressive 
and don't smell as good and didn't show up in the same impressive sort of way. He's going, so that's folly. It's wicked. You see, we will not get to, we will not begin to access the solutions that the scriptures have for us as to how we as a community, rich and poor together as brothers and sisters, create something different and beautiful in the world. We won't get to start being part of the cure of the blight on humanity that is poverty and brokenness and mistreatment of people if we don't clearly see and lay hold of our equality. If we don't figure this out, there's no hope for a cure. And if we need any further motivation, let's just look at one other proverb. In Proverbs 22, verse 22 and 23, it says this, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for, those of you who've taken our how to study the Bible class, you know that we we love the word for around here because it is a grounds clause. It's explaining to you why the author just made the statement they made. They're like, hey, pay attention. It's such an easy word to pass over, for. It seems like a throwaway. It's not a throwaway. What he's saying is this, is watch out for the poor and let me tell you why. For the Lord is gonna plead their cause and he's gonna rob of life those who rob them. What he's saying is God is profoundly aware of the poor and he fights for them. If we need motivation to step into the realities of equality as a people, we need to go no further than this recognition that God is going to fight for the poor. It was a big weekend at my house. Um, I got to introduce my son to the comedic genius that is the three amigos. I hope you've all delighted in this film as I do. Um, It's part of the education at the Morris house. The oldest son was finally ready for the three amigos. And I was reminded uh, as I watched these three going out, I I love, you know, their their call sign. Uh, They say, wherever there is injustice, we will be there, you know? Wherever there is suffering, wherever liberty is threatened, you will find the three amigos. It's silly. We were cracking up watching them. But the beauty was that they were being transformed They're being transformed into heroic characters that were processing human suffering and transforming it into something different. And their their call sign, though silly, when it's coming from Ned Niederlander, you know. But the truth is, it's God's call sign. That's what he says. All jokes aside, it's funny when the three amigos say it. It's appropriately terrifying in a holy way when you hear God say, wherever there is injustice or suffering or wherever liberty is threatened, listen, I'm on my way and I'm going to fight. And the reality is, the question is, is that true of us? Like, do, do you? Is this your call sign? Is this what we say? Well, wherever that's going on, I run there because my God is for the defense of those realities. You see, the first note is that we have to embrace equality. The second, as I noted last week, is going to demand an entire sermon. And so I'm just gonna tell you, this is the second reality and you're gonna have to come back next week to get the full explanation. Personal generosity is part of the cure. That when we really understand 
a quality down in our bones where we quit playing these favoritism games and we start seeing people the way God sees them. All of a sudden this reality that I've got things that could meet the needs of those made in the image of God. How could I not begin to posture myself in generosity? Equality breeds generosity and next week we will explore that at length. The last note is this. Equality produces generosity and a people committed to systemic change. And I love this proverb. It stands in for a host that we could read together. I was trying to avoid giving you 26 proverbs like I did last week. I was trying to learn my lesson. Proverbs 29, 14 says this. If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. In the wisdom literature, the way that a political leader, a king who is leading in a territory, the way that his reign is evaluated is how it impacts the poor. And this is not the only place it says that. Consistently, what the scriptures are saying is, you want to know if this was a good leader or a bad leader? Well, let's ask this question. What happened to the poor under them? Did they flourish? That's the question that God asks when evaluating a leader. Which incidentally, I think speaks to these realities that do you not hear it? That God recognizes in his profound wisdom that we cannot paint in simple pictures. And so he says, listen, if you want to understand the cause of poverty, it's personal responsibility and it's injustice and oppression. And if we're going to get at the the cures of that blight on humanity, we together need to be a people that recognize equality in the image of God and then position ourselves with personal generosity and systemic change. Like we need leadership committed to the blessing and the benefit and the right judgment of all people, especially the poor. God's design is for a people with a robust view of equality that are not eliminating nuance and thinking in singular ways. Now, the way that we get at that, we could work out with good and robust conversations and we're the sort of community that I hope fosters those sorts of conversations. I don't think there's one way and I don't, I, I love, I love this about this community. Listen, If you turn to the person to your right or your left, the chances are you're going to find someone with a radically different political view than you. I love that. I believe that's the kingdom of God coming to play. Uh, That we are a people that are submitted to Jesus, living for a king and a kingdom that's not of this world. So in saying these things, I'm not prescribing some political perspective. What I am saying is this. We want holistic biblical wisdom to inform the way we view everything, especially as it relates to today, the way that we think about economics, poverty, wealth, and the way that we can be a part of the cure in that area. You see, we are a people that are going to resist simplistic explanation. And listen for God's voice and go wherever it leads us. This is a commitment to being a a biblically formed people. A people that are committed to ancient wisdom for modern living. And, And I hope you feel it with me. Because as we come to this point in the sermon, what we've recognized is here's this really complex situation. Incidentally, a complex situation that is relatively unchanged 3,000 years after the author penned these Proverbs. And when Jesus showed up on the earth, what he said is this, you will always have the poor with you. 
He actually articulated to the church, to his followers. He wasn't painting some picture of a Shangri-La that we're gonna be able to conquer and win in this world because we live in a broken world. Jesus himself articulated, we're not gonna crack this code and figure this out together. Yet, he called his people to continue to press in because we are a people committed to the kingdom of God breaking in here and now while we await its full consummation in Jesus. And the only way that we can be these sorts of people is by reveling in and remaining focused on Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Because listen, this is what the gospel does as it relates to this topic. It humbles the rich. It humbles the powerful. What the gospel says is this, your money cannot save you. Your education and your connections and you work yourself to the front of every line and you're the VIP everywhere you go. Listen, in God's economy, it doesn't work that way. You are in desperate need and until you admit it and you are humbled in the ashes because of your sin and your brokenness before God, there is no hope for you. And the gospel says to the poor, listen, you desperately need Jesus and he is available to you. The gospel humbles the proud and it exalts the broken and the impoverished and all together they come in this place and they go, oh, the grace of God is equally accessible because Jesus lived the life I was supposed to live and died the death I was supposed to die and comes freely to love me wherever I am on the spectrum, unimpressed, and also not washing his hands of me because he doesn't think I'm powerful enough. The gospel is the radical equalizer of all people. God's love is opening the door to all people radically in this way. It unifies us and then it provides a new heart. When the love of Jesus dawns on us in that place, it provides a new heart that allows the kingdom rule of God to break in in real ways. And we together as men and women who begin to understand the way that Jesus has rescued us and is situating us under him, we get to turn our eyes to a king whose reign and rule is going to benefit the weak and the needy. Did you hear that last proverb? If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. And there's only one king whose throne is going to be established forever. Listen, his name is Jesus Christ and he's already on his throne. And one day, the sky is gonna be peeled back in fire and we will see him in all of his majesty. And from that throne, he is going to reign perfectly and graciously forever in a way that everyone who has recognized their poverty before him will flourish without end. We wanna be the sort of people that so believe that that it begins to influence the way that we with a vision for equality and generosity and systemic change are bringing his kingdom to bear in Houston as it is in heaven. We wanna be those sorts of people for his glory. Amen? Amen? Let me pray for us. So gracious God and Father, we thank you that your word is alive, active, sharp, that it challenges and equips us. Would you show us where our brokenness or greed or wickedness or the ways that we are tempted to think of ourselves as a victim or we want to hang back in 
and laziness, that wherever these texts find us out, I pray that they would invite us into your wisdom and into your life and that we would be the sort of people that by Jesus' power and grace can identify the causes of brokenness in the world and be a part of its cures. Help us to be those sorts of people. Jesus, we thank you for this time. We pray that you'd be high and exalted in our sight today and that we would worship you rightly in response to this. It's in your name we pray, amen.